0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. You know why today's a good day? Because uh, today the Broncos aren't going to lose, you know, because they're, they're not playing. So anyway, that's, a, that's always a good thing on a Sunday. Um, and hey, I want to give you one more thing, which is uh, an update on our building project. Some of you know, if you've been around, that uh, we've been in this building for several years now, and it's been good to us. It's been a real blessing. But we do believe that God's got a next stage for us as a church, and that stage includes uh, having a facility of our own, which will—it's it's not really about getting our own building. It's about having a facility that would enable us to do more of the ministry that we believe that God's calling us to do, more of the great things that we're already doing, And we're going to continue doing. And one of the things I love about the way we've approached this building with our leaders here is that we've always said, you know, this isn't like our end game. This isn't the the thing that we need to have. In fact, it's not like when we get that, then we will be able to do all the things we want to do. No, not at all. We're going to start doing them. Here and now we're going to be who we are. And then we're just going to put it before you guys and say, hey, here's, here's what it will take for us to go to the next stage and get our, next, our own facility. And if you want to be part of that, then we would love for you to be part of it. So that's our approach. And I think that God's been blessing that. So just a few updates. One of the things we told you, are we were raising a down payment. Now we've finally reached that level where, by your generosity and by God's grace, we have reached kind of the minimum threshold for a down payment on a building that we believe we can afford, and so that's great. We could still use more, so that doesn't mean okay now you can let off the gas. But I just want you to know that, man, it's we've really uh, been doing really well at that, and you've been very generous, and God's been very gracious. Uh, so that's great. Another thing that's been great, we asked you to pray about that we would be able to secure a lender, and so that we could get a, a building, and so. We have secured a lender. We, we, in fact, it's better than just a traditional lender. We found this great nonprofit group. Uh, our lender actually turned us on to this group. They work with churches, and they don't work with just anybody. They, they kind of do, they're very picky about who they choose to work with, but they met with us. They heard about our mission, vision, what God's doing here at Whitefields. And they said, we want to partner with you guys. And so whether it's this building that we've been looking at over on Ninth Avenue or whether it's any building, they said, we want to be with you no matter where it is, which is very encouraging. And so they're, they're not just a lender, but they are um, they're kind of full service like they do it all from architecture and everything. And so they want to work with us. It's very encouraging. So they're on board, and we've got the down payment. And the next thing is the building. So we've just got to pray for the right building. We had this building uh, on Ninth Avenue. We are kind of pursuing it. We're still pursuing it, doing kind of our due diligence. But before, you know, we haven't made an offer yet. And uh, there's a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is that our lender said, hey, uh, there's not adequate parking on site. So if you're going to get this building, you need to secure a long-term lease agreement with the parking lot across the street. So we've been reaching out about that. And we just got kind of a, a letter this week saying, that uh, the people who own that parking lot are not willing to uh, enter into a long-term lease agreement on that parking lot. Now, that doesn't mean that's the last word on that, but it also kind of means, you know, maybe that's how God's directing us. So we just want to hold it with an open hand and say, Lord, whatever you want for us, whenever you want for us, we just want to be in step with you. We don't want to try and force anything or contrive anything. This is your church, Lord, and, and we just trust that you'll open the right doors in the right places at the right times. So just be praying along those lines. We, we st- this parking agreement still might work out. This building still might work out. And if it does, things will probably move pretty quickly uh, once that's in place. But if it doesn't work out and we need to go look for something else, or maybe the, the right place for us just hasn't opened up, then we're going to wait for that and wait for that to open up and trust God in that too. So let's go ahead and pray for that. And we're also going to pray for our study as we get into the book of Romans today. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Thank you, Lord, this is a place where we can gather and study your word and worship you and be in fellowship and grow through relationship with other believers. Lord, thank you that you have blessed our church in this space. And and Lord, if it's your will for us to be somewhere else, please direct us to that place. Please open the door and give us patience as we wait. And I think about this band today, this idea of running with patience. So that's what we want to do. We want to run with patience, keeping our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would bless these things, and as we as a family move into the next stage, we just want to be patiently waiting upon you. We ask ask that you would work open doors that no one can shut and close doors that shouldn't be open in the first place for us. And, Lord, we just trust it all to you. In Jesus' name, we ask also that you bless our study of your word today as we get into Romans 14. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so we might see your glory in your word, Lord, that we might understand the beauty of the gospel, Lord, that it might touch our hearts deeply, that it might transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have been studying through the book of Romans. We've been going all the way through. That's the way we like to generally study here at Whitefields is we'll go take a book of the Bible and we'll go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from beginning to end. We've been doing that with Romans, started in chapter 1, verse 1. Now today we are in chapter 14. So we're going to read some of our text before we begin. So Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment any longer on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is God's word. So did you know that... Christians don't always agree on things. Like, I know, it's weird, right? Like, uh, you might be surprised to hear that, but Christians don't always see eye to eye on every issue. And uh, that might not be surprising, probably shouldn't be surprising. I was just thinking about it, like, in my family, there are five of us who live in our house at the moment, and we can't even decide on what, like, restaurant to go to. You pack us in a sedan, and we can't even decide which restaurant to go to. We can't decide what movie to watch on TV. I don't know if you've had this experience, but we have it all the time, where we're like, Let's watch a movie. We're scrolling through everything on the TV. And then we do it for so long that we're like, you know what, let's just forget it. And then we all just go and look at our phones, right? Like, and so, um, you know, and if five people who are related to each other can't even agree on something, to, something as simple as what movie to watch or what restaurant to eat at, then when we're talking about billions of Christians around the world or even just hundreds of Christians in a church like ours here, and, and when we're talking about something as important to people as what they believe about God and about how to live life and these fundamental things, well, you can be sure that if five people can't agree on a restaurant then, of course, hundreds aren't going to even be able to agree on everything. There will be differences of opinions. But you might think, well, that's kind of weird, right? Because as Christians, uh, we have the Bible. So, you know, easy. Here's what you need to do. Everybody just read the Bible and do what it says, and then we'll all be on the same page, right? Except it's not that simple, is it? Because the Bible doesn't say exactly how you should vote on health care. The Bible doesn't say if you can go to a casino and gamble or not. It doesn't say if you can, what shows you can watch on Netflix and which ones you can't. What the Bible does give us is it gives us principles. And we can apply principles that the Bible gives us to all of those situations in life. But when it comes to which principles to apply in which particular situation and how we apply them, Christians don't always see eye to eye. There can be differences of opinion. So, for example, I was visiting with a friend recently, and he said, you know, I can't understand how anyone who's a Christian could ever vote for that particular candidate or for that particular party. But then I talked to some other friends of mine, and they were like, "Um, you know, I don't understand how a true Christian could ever vote for the other candidate or the other political party. Or when it comes to alcohol, like I have one friend, and he says this, Christians should never drink any alcohol because Proverbs says, that it is not for kings to drink wine, and then it says in Revelation that God made us a nation of kings and priests. So therefore, if God says we're kings and kings shouldn't drink wine, then Christians should never drink alcohol. But then I have other friends who say, well, you know, I mean, the Bible really just says that Christians shouldn't ever be drunk with wine, but then you've got Jesus making water into wine, and, and you've got Jesus drinking wine at the Last Supper with his disciples, so as long as you're doing it in moderation, it'd be fine, they say. Or, or let's think about when it comes to smoking tobacco, right? Like the Bible doesn't say anything about tobacco, but many people consider it a sin, right? Or at least something that Christians shouldn't do, even if, they, if they're not sure if it's a sin. The Bible says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as you noticed, there's no chimney on the temple, right? Like, so if God wanted us to smoke, he would have put a chimney on the temple. There you go, shouldn't be smoking. Now, I've known other, other Christians in, in some groups, right? They are not willing to baptize someone who smoke cigarettes, or or let you be a member of of their church if you smoke. But see, the thing is that sometimes those people who use that verse and say, hey, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore you shouldn't do unhealthy things, you shouldn't smoke, they're not always consistent in how they apply that principle either. They apply it to people who smoke, but they don't apply it to people who eat like bacon cheeseburgers. And, And they don't apply it to people who don't work out regularly and don't exercise, even though heart disease actually kills more people than smoking. And other people might point out that if you actually look at that verse in context, like that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, in context it's not at all talking about health related things at all. What it's talking about is Christians who are going out and sleeping with prostitutes and so it's really a verse about sexual immorality, not about healthy living. And the point is that Christians don't always see eye to eye on things, right? And how we apply these principles and how we do these things that the Bible doesn't speak to clearly these are the gray areas right so christians also tend to get in really big fights over theology you probably noticed that churches split people get in arguments over theology and some of those arguments by the way are absolutely justified and legitimate one of my favorite stories to tell my kids at christmas time is the story of St. Nicholas. I don't know if you know this, but St. Nicholas was a real person. He lived uh, around 300 AD in what is now southern Turkey. So in a region called Mira, that was the city he lived in. And it's on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. So when you think about Santa Claus, you shouldn't be thinking about North Pole and igloos. You should be thinking about white sand beaches and palm trees. That's the real St. Nicholas. And what's even cooler is he was a pastor, and he was known for being very generous to the poor. That's where we get a lot of our traditions about giving gifts and stockings and all of these things at Christmas time. And so Nicholas, as a pastor, he became the head pastor of his region. He became the bishop. And as a bishop, he was invited to the first what was called ecumenical council, which was held in Nicaea in 325 A.D., And this was a council at Nicaea where the church leaders from all over the world were invited to come together and search the scriptures and determine what the scriptures said about Jesus. Does the Bible really teach that Jesus is God? Because there was this guy at the time named Arius, and he was going around teaching that Jesus wasn't really God, like he was kind of a big deal, but he wasn't really God. And and so the church had always taught that Jesus was God because that's what the Bible clearly teaches. But Arius was going around, and a lot of people were getting confused, and a lot of people were like, Well, Arius is saying this, and it's pretty convincing. And so the church leaders said, We gotta get together, we're gonna study the scriptures, we're gonna make a determination on what the Bible says, and we're gonna put this debate to rest once and for all. And so the story goes there at the Council of Nicaea as they're debating. This issue with Arius, that Arius stands up and he starts talking and Nicholas of Myra, right? Again, Saint Nick, right, Santa Claus, gets up and he's so upset with Arius for Arius and what he's saying about Jesus, that Jesus isn't God. He's like, man, you are blaspheming Jesus. He gets so upset that he just wheeled back and punched Arius right in the face. And I just like to tell my kids, see kids, that's the real Santa Claus. The real Santa Claus is not a fat guy who drinks Coca-Cola who lives up at the North Pole. No, he's, he's a pastor who loves Jesus, and he lives on the beach, and he gets in fist fights over bad theology. That's my kind of Santa Claus, right? But, but there, see, so there are some fights theologically that are absolutely justified, that we should fight over, right? The core doctrines of our faith. But in general, Christians tend to argue the most about the things for which the Bible is least clear. Don't we? So we argue over the things which are least clear in the Bible. And and the reason we fight about them is because they're not clear. If they were clear, we wouldn't argue about them. That's why Christians don't tend to argue about the things that are obvious in the scriptures, like, is the Bible really the Word of God? We don't argue about that. Only the cults argue about that. We don't argue about, was Jesus really God? No, only the cults argue about that. As Christians, we don't argue about that because it's crystal clear in the Bible. But when it comes to other things that aren't as clear, like how exactly the end times are going to play out or how baptism should be conducted and what age and and how we should do it and what instruments can be used in the church and if you can wear hats in church and things like that. And people have differences of opinion and they fight and they argue about these things and they'll split churches over them. And, And so even though we have the Bible to guide us, there are many things about which Christians don't see eye to eye. And and I want you to remember this. These things are usually, almost always, not primary issues. They're not things which are core to our faith. They're matters of opinion, matters of interpretation. And the question is this. How are we supposed to handle the differences that we have within the Christian community? How are we supposed to handle the differences we have within the Christian community? And what God gives us here in Romans 14 is a radically different way of handling conflict and differences of opinion. It's a radically different way of handling conflicts and differences of opinion than what is common in the world even today. Now think about the way that our society generally treats differences of opinion or, or conflicts Think about when it comes to politics, for example. We live in such an incendiary political environment. Our society is incredibly divided by this right now. And what we have is we have all these cable news networks, and we have all these political talk radio people, and we have all these YouTubers making videos, and they just feed into that division. And what they do is they get you to the point where if someone has a difference of opinion with you, you, you can't just have a difference of opinion. No, you have to see that person not as, not as just wrong, but as your enemy, And they are what's wrong with this country. And you know what? We'd be a lot better if those people weren't here. And you see how that escalates and escalates and escalates to the point where people resort to violence. We have people sending pipe bombs in the mail to people who disagree with them politically. Now think about how radically different what we have here in Romans chapter 14 is. It's a radically different approach to how we deal with conflict, how we think about people who have differences of opinion with us. And this view is rooted in the gospel. And I got to tell you, when you really get this, it's like a breath of fresh air compared to the way that people in society generally handle conflict, which is to demonize, to divide, to separate, say, hey, we don't see eye to eye, well, then I'm out of here. Or we don't see eye to eye, then you're not just wrong, you're my enemy. This is a breath of fresh air compared to that about how we handle conflict and disagreement. And the title of today's message is Redefining Strength and Weakness. Redefining Strength and Weakness. And here's what we're gonna see in this chapter. Number one, the surprising truth about strength and weakness. And number two, we're gonna talk about something we're sacrificing for. So number one, the, the surprising truth about strength and weakness. Paul begins in verse one by saying this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. So that word opinions is also translated disputable matters. So some of you are reading different translations. Some of your translations will say do not quarrel over disputable matters. I think that's a little bit more clear than opinions. See, a disputable matter is an issue which, again, the Bible doesn't address specifically or in clear principle and as a result there can be legitimate differences of opinions amongst people who are Christians regarding these subjects. Now, let me be clear from the outset. Not every issue in the Bible or in the Christian life is a disputable matter. What that means is that there are also what we could we should rightly call indisputable matters. There are things that there are hills that are worth dying on. There are things which are not just a matter of opinion that are not just up for debate which are not disputable. And it's really important that we, as Christians, that we differentiate between those things, between what is disputable matter and what's an indisputable matter. Sometimes we refer to these things as primary doctrines and secondary doctrines. Primary doctrines and secondary doctrines. Primary doctrines are the things which are indisputable, right? Like, they're the things which, this is what it means to be a Christian. If you reject these things, then you should not legitimately call yourself a Christian these are things like, who is Jesus? How are we saved? Now, but secondary doctrines are things for which there is room for discussion and debate and differences of opinion and practice. There's a saying which is sometimes attributed to Augustine, but we're not really sure who said it. But here's the saying. It's a good one. It says, in essentials, let there be unity. In disputable matters, let there be liberty. But in all things, let there be love. So in essentials, unity. In disputable matters, liberty. And in all things, love. See, not everything in the Christian life is disputable. Not everything's a matter of opinion. But clearly, um, you know, there are some things that the Bible speaks very, very black and white about. Murder, lying, sexual immorality, pride, hatred, envy, unforgiveness. There's no question. Those things are wrong. That's not up for debate. But there are other things which are disputable. Things like tattoos, right? Like, or, or Halloween, or psychology. And maybe you say, come on, man, just arguing about this stuff is so silly. No, I'll tell you this. There are some people who have very strong opinions about those things. They don't think they're silly at all. They think they're very important. And here's what Paul says to us about that. He says, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome them, but do not quarrel over opinions. Verse 2, one person believes that he may eat anything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. The specific issue in their church at this time regarded eating meat. Now, I know many of you here are vegetarians and vegans. We all live in Boulder County, so we're all, you know, about half of us are probably vegans. And uh, the rest of you live in like Southwest Weld County, so that's pretty much Boulder County, right? Like you're probably all vegans too. Now, I just want you to know, first of all, let me say this. I love vegetarians. I especially love inviting vegetarians to barbecues because there's, there's always more meat left over for me. But uh, the reason that these people were vegetarians is different than the reason why people today tend to be vegetarians here where we live. So these people weren't vegetarians for health reasons or for ethical reasons. Those tend to be the main reasons why people are vegetarians today. Health reasons and ethical reasons. Their reason for being vegetarians was something different. Their reason was a spiritual reason and namely, and this is the crux of it, you got to get this, they were doing it out of fear. They were doing it out of fear. So what were they afraid of? Well, there were two main things that we know from Christian writings that the Christians at this time were afraid of, which caused them to say, I'm not going to eat meat. So number one, some were afraid of eating meat because most of the meat that you would buy at the market had been sacrificed to idols, especially in a city like Rome, which is where this letter was written, right? So if you're a Roman person and you're a worshiper of Zeus and you've got a cow on your property and you're going to slaughter that cow and sell the meat at the market, then a lot of times you might say, hey, well, I should definitely kill two birds with one stone. I'll make a sacrifice to Zeus with this animal. I got to kill it anyway. So I'll make a sacrifice to Zeus with this animal, and then I'll take the meat and sell it. It's kind of a win-win, right? Like uh, Zeus is happy with me, and I get to make some money for my family. But the Christians were really concerned about this because they didn't want anything to do with pagan worship and sacrifice. And so just to be sure that they would never even accidentally eat any meat that was sacrificed to idols, some of them decided, you know what, we're just not going to eat any meat at all. We're only going to eat vegetables. And other Christians looked at that and they said, you know what, those idols, it's just a hunk of stone, man. It's just a piece of wood. They don't have any power, and we don't have to be worried about that stuff because we worship Jesus. He's the one who overcame all the powers of, of sin and evil and death on the cross, and so there's no reason, you know, to let that fear keep you from enjoying a nice juicy steak. Now, there were others who were afraid of eating meat because they came from a Jewish background, and they couldn't be absolutely sure that the meat that they were eating had been slaughtered in a kosher manner. Right? So these Christians brought up Jewish and still kind of hanging on to a little bit of this Jewish dietary law. But living in Rome, you know, you could never really be sure that your meat had been slaughtered and prepared in a, according to the Jewish law in a kosher manner. And, and even though they were still Christians, they, they were still believing that they needed to follow the Jewish dietary laws and rules and requirements And so because they couldn't be sure, they said, you know what, so that we don't mess up or we're not tainted spiritually by eating unkosher food, we're just not gonna eat any meat at all. We'll only eat vegetables. And again, other Christians look at that and they said, don't you know that you guys don't have to follow the Jewish dietary law anymore now that you're Christians? Because all the Jewish dietary law, it was pointing towards Jesus, right? It was all about cleanliness and purity. And Jesus comes and he makes us clean and pure. In other words, Jesus doesn't just make your food kosher. He makes you kosher. And that's the message of the gospel. And so you can eat whatever you want now. And this was an area of dispute. And Paul says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, this is what tends to happen in disputable matters. Notice what it says. Those who feel that they have liberty, right, the more liberally minded people, they tend to despise those who are more strict. They don't look at them as immoral, they just look at them as kind of dumb, like don't you just look at the facts? And those who, who tend to be more strict, they tend to not, not look at the other people as, uh, as dumb. They tend to look at them as evil. They tend to pass judgment on them and say, hey, you're eating the devil's meat and you don't care about God and you don't care about holiness. And they judge them. And Paul is saying, no, neither of you guys, both of you guys, knock it off. Let me show you a different way. He says in verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, the kind of judging that's being talked about here is a kind of dismissive attitude where you look down your nose at somebody, where you think that you are better than them and you treat them as if they are less than you and that there is absolutely no place for that kind of judgmental attitude, this is telling us, in the kingdom of God. Now, just think for a moment about how different this is than the way that people in our society in general relate to those who hold differences of opinions with them. Right? All that divisive rhetoric. Think about the media. You hear all this divisive rhetoric that tells you that the way you should look at people who don't think the way you do is that you should look down on them. You should think of them as dumb and naive and uninformed or maybe even Evil. The Bible gives us a very different way, a different vision of how to look at people who have differences of opinion than us. Rather than looking down on them, rather than demonizing them, we are to love them and treat them with respect. Notice something else in verse 1. It says that we are to welcome the person who is weak in the faith. If you are a person who is weak in the faith, hey, God bless you. We are so glad that you're here with us today. The church is not meant to be a club for people who have it all together. The church is to be a place where anybody can come and be welcomed in and grow in the knowledge of God through his word. But notice this, in in chapter 15, verse 1, so next chapter, I'm going to sneak a peek at the next chapter, verse 1, Paul says this, we who are strong ought to have an obligation, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. So here in this section, the Bible is giving us a completely new framework, a completely new model for thinking about strength and weakness. First of all, who is the person who is weak? The person who is weak is the person who is fearful, the person who is not confident in the gospel. See, the reason these people were abstaining from meat was because they were afraid, they were scared. They were afraid of getting somehow spiritually tainted by not eating meat that was like unkosher or that had been sacrificed to idols. They were afraid of getting tainted Now, that fear was unfounded. The truth is, they didn't have anything to worry about because Jesus overcame sin, death, and the devil, and in him, we are more than conquerors. We don't have to live in fear. That's why the writer, remember Psalm 23, the Psalm writer says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? I will fear no evil because you are with me. See, as as Christians, because God is with us, we don't have to fear evil. Sometimes people talk about spiritual warfare, and and they'll talk about it as if there's kind of like this tug-of-war competition going on between God and his his forces and Satan and, and his forces, and, and it's kind of like Satan's just barely winning, and, and you know, God might lose this one, and, and Satan might just win this whole thing, but I want you to see the message of the gospel, a clear message of Jesus is this, that Jesus came, he triumphed over death and the devil on the cross, and if we are in him, then we share in that victory, and we have nothing to fear when it comes to evil. But, but those who were afraid, you know, they were afraid that they might accidentally eat unkosher meat, or they might accidentally get tainted. And it, it was a totally unfounded thing. It came from a lack of understanding about the gospel. Because the good news, again, of the gospel is that Jesus has made us clean, and nothing from the outside can make us unclean We've been made kosher in Jesus. We're not gonna lose our salvation by something that we accidentally lose. You don't lose your salvation like you lose your keys, like oops, where'd I where'd I put that? I didn't mean to, but I did on accident. See, the weak person is weak because not because they're more strict. See, I think that's what some people think when they read this section. Oh, the weak person's weak because they're more strict. No, the weak person's weak because they're afraid, because they don't have confidence because they haven't yet fully understood and embraced the gospel. See, when you understand the gospel, here's what it does, it makes you incredibly confident, because you know that in Jesus you're absolutely secure. The reason these people were weak, it might be because they were new in the faith. It might be because they hadn't been taught well those who were strong. They were encouraged to welcome those who were weak, to bear with them, to help them along, not to look down on them and judge them or despise them. And Jesus gives us a whole new model of thinking about strength. Think back with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Let me paint the picture. They've just had the Last Supper. Jesus is going to be arrested in just a few hours. They've only got a few hours left with this man who they followed for three years, this man, the greatest man who ever lived, this one they looked to as their Savior, as their Messiah. They've only got a couple hours left, and so they leave the place where they had the Last Supper, and they're walking up the Mount of Olives. It's a hill next to the old city in Jerusalem. They're walking up this hill to go to a garden called where Jesus is going to pray all night long, so stressed by what awaits him that blood is coming out of his capillaries and pores. And so as they're walking up the Mount of Olives to this place where Jesus is going to pray before he's going to be arrested and later crucified, what are they having a discussion about? They're having a discussion about which of them is the greatest, which of them is the most famous, which of them is, is, the, is the best, And here they are, it's so ironic, they're with the greatest person who ever lived and they're having this silly argument right before he's about to go to the cross about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus interrupts their conversation and here's what he says, Luke 22, verse 24. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority are called benefactors, but it will not be so with you. Rather, the greatest among you Will be the youngest, and the leader will be the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am amongst you as one who serves. Jesus is giving his disciples a whole new way of thinking about strength right? Whereas the world thinks about strength and power in one way, right? Like like being able to tell, boss other people around and and have other people wait on you. Jesus is saying, he's turning it all on its head. He's saying, no, in my kingdom, it works differently. Being truly strong is being willing to serve other people. True strength, Jesus says, is not putting yourself on a pedestal. True strength is getting underneath other people and lifting them up. And another time, Jesus would put it this way to his disciples in a separate conversation, because it seemed like they talked Talked about this quite a bit. And Jesus told them, he goes, hey, look, even the Son of Man, even me, even the Messiah, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, what we learn from Jesus and what we learn here in Romans 12 is a couple things. Number one, true strength is understanding that it's not just about you. Do you know that? True strength is an understanding that it's not just about you. A truly strong person doesn't just think about themselves. A truly strong person isn't only concerned with their own personal fulfillment or their own ambitions or their own pleasure. The truly strong person is the one who thinks of others, not just themselves. That's why Paul says in verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another, but let us decide to never put a stumbling block in the place of another person. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing's unclean unto itself, but it is unclean for the person who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, he says, do not destroy the work of God. And that brings us to the second thing about true strength that we learn here. True strength means caring more about the mission of God than about your own comfort. I'm going to say that again. If you're a note taker, write this down. For those of you know, true strength, it means... Caring more about the mission of God than you do about your own comfort. Paul says in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, see the mission of God is more important than your own comfort or preference. See, we see these same characteristics in Jesus himself, don't we? Jesus lived his life not for his own sake, but in obedience to the Father and for the sake of others. When you read this text, and if you read this text and all you come away with from it is this, well, legalistic people are weak and not legalistic people are strong. If that's all you got out of this text, you haven't really understood the point of this text. The surprising truth about strength and weakness is that true strength comes from understanding the gospel and trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross and who you are in him. And true strength means, under, means understanding that it's not just about you. True strength means caring more about the mission of God than you care about your own comfort. And that brings us to our second point, which will be shorter. And that is something we're sacrificing for. Paul says in verse five, one person esteems one day as better than the others, another person esteems every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. For the one who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. The one who eats, eats to the Lord, gives thanks to the Lord. The one who doesn't eat, also abstains unto the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. See, this is interesting. What Paul is saying is, Just because you have a freedom doesn't mean you should exercise that freedom. So just because you have a freedom doesn't mean that you necessarily should exercise that freedom. And on the other hand, just because you're not under the law and you don't have to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't necessarily do that thing. So, for example, just because you can drink alcohol doesn't mean you necessarily should drink alcohol. On the other hand, you could look at something uh, from the other perspective, something from the Old Testament law, like the Sabbath or, or like tithing, for example, right? The Old Testament law required that all of the people of God give 10% of their income to the service of the temple and the work of God. Now, as Christians, we're no longer under the law so we don't have to observe that law which is awesome right like we get to keep our 10% for ourselves but just because you don't have to doesn't mean that you shouldn't see what I'm saying just because you don't have to doesn't mean that you shouldn't now you might you might wonder well who in their right mind would give up their freedom i mean if you were, if you've gotten freedom in an area well then who in their right mind would give up their freedom let me tell you this people give up their freedom all the time let me let me tell you something about uh, my life you you know well first of all you know why people give up their freedom Because there's something that they love more than their freedom. There's something that they want more than their freedom. They wanna use their freedom to get something that they want more than their freedom. For example, there was a time in my life when I was truly free. You know that? I could go anywhere I wanted. I could do anything I wanted. I didn't have to check in. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission, and I did. I would go to like IHOP at one in the morning and just read a book and drink coffee until the sun came up. I would go on trips and just stay as long as I wanted and go wherever I wanted. But then, one day, I gave up that freedom And now I'm 35 years old, and if I want to go somewhere, I have to ask for permission. And I'm like, my friends are like, hey, you want to go do this? And I'm like, yeah, totally. Let me just check. And I call my wife, and I'm like, hey, can I go do this thing? No? Okay, yeah, I didn't want to do it anyway. Never mind. It's fine. Hey, guys, sorry. I'm never going to hang out with you again. And you know why? You know why I gave up my freedom? Because I got married. And you know what? To make it even worse, I went and had kids. And you know what? Let's just say freedom is not exactly the first word that comes to your mind when you describe someone who's married with children. And beyond that, you know what else I did? I went out and I got a job. And now I can't just go and do whatever I want anymore. Now you might ask, now why in the world would I do something like that to myself? Why would I give up my freedom like that? Well, here's why. Because there was something I loved more than my freedom. There was something I wanted more than my freedom. And I used my freedom to get something which I consider better than my own freedom. And what Paul's saying here in verses five and six is that what each of us needs to do in these areas, these gray areas, these areas of freedom, is that what you need to do once you understand the gospel, once you understand what Jesus did and and you're totally secure in that and that you understand that your right standing with God is based on what Jesus did, not on what you do, the next thing you do when it comes to these gray areas is that you seek the Lord about them. You say, Lord, okay, I see that maybe I have the freedom to drink alcohol, but Lord, I want you to, I want to discuss this with you. I want to talk about this. Lord, is that the best thing for me? And I begin to ask other questions. I'm not just asking what can I get away with. I'm asking other questions. Now I'm seeking the Lord. I'm asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what would bring you the most honor? Lord, what would mean, what would bring you the most glory? Where I have freedom, where I can go either way. Lord, what would you have that's best for me? Paul wrote to the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians 10 23, and he said, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You know, sometimes people ask me, Is it a sin if I do this? You know, whatever that is. Is it a sin? Can I do this? And and what I generally tell them is, You are asking the wrong question to begin with. That's the wrong question. Asking whether or not that thing is right or wrong. that's not the right question to ask. Instead of asking, can I do this, or is this sin, the question you should be asking is, does it please God? Would it, would it honor God? Would it bring God glory for me to do this? Would it strengthen my relationship with God for me to do this? Would it further God's mission for me to do this? See, just because I can do something doesn't mean I necessarily should do something, and just because I don't have to do something doesn't mean that I necessarily shouldn't do that thing. It's, that's the nature of freedom. So when it comes to these gray areas... In regard to disputable matters, what we're to do is seek God about what we should do in those areas. And whatever conclusion we come to, we are to do it unto the Lord, and we are not to pass judgment on those who come to a conclusion that's different than ours. That's the whole gist of this whole chapter. And Paul says one final thing in the very last two verses of chapter 14, he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because eating, the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What that means is that if you have a conviction about a particular thing, if you have a conviction, for example, that you shouldn't drink, like it might be okay for other people, but you have a conviction that you shouldn't do it, if you were to do it anyway for you, that would actually be a sin. In other words, when it comes to these gray areas, there are things which might be, it might be a sin for one person and not for another person. And here's the thing, we shouldn't, if somebody else has a conviction, we shouldn't try to dissuade them from that conviction or talk them out of it. Rather, when it comes to these gray areas, what we wanna do is show love and respect and we we wanna encourage people to sort these things out between them and the Lord and be absolutely convinced about these things. So in conclusion, let me just say this. The thing about Romans 14 is that it comes after Romans 13, which comes after Romans 12, which comes after Romans 11, and so on and so on, all the way back to Romans chapter 1. See, it's a very practical section, but it doesn't just stand on its own. It's built on the foundation of the gospel which Paul laid out for us in chapters 1 through 8. And here in Romans chapter 12 through 15, it's all about how the gospel transforms our relationships. We've seen how the gospel transforms our relationship with God. We've seen how how the gospel transforms our relationships with other people. Here we see how the gospel transforms our relationship with freedom. And there are a lot of things for which we are called to use our freedom not for our own pleasure, but for God's glory. We're called to use our freedom, sometimes by giving it away for the sake of other people, for a purpose that's greater than ourselves and for our own comfort. That's what true strength is all about. And I'll just conclude with these words from Philippians chapter two. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus' strength was found in that he used his freedom— by giving it away for the sake of others and for the sake of God's mission. He who was strong became weak so that we through him might become strong. And in the same way, we're called to use our strength so that others might become strong in the Lord through our our freedoms and through our strength. If you do that, then like Jesus, it will lead to greater joy, not just for you, but for those who benefit from it through you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this this message. It's challenging to us in some ways, and Lord, I pray that you would bring us conviction about areas where perhaps we have been judgmental, where we have perhaps demonized those who think differently from us in these disputable matters. Lord, may we be gracious to those. May we be a family where there's room for discussion and differences of opinion on disputable matters. Lord, in the things that are indisputable, may we be rock hard and solidified and just truly rejoicing in the truth of the gospel that is indisputable, but in these disputable matters, Lord, may we have grace. And Lord, in all all things, Lord, you direct us in how to use our freedoms to to best honor you and to best help others. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.